You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 103 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In the last episode, John Saunders of the Pitwater Partnership walked you through the different options that are out there when our clients' parents need more support, be it in retirement villages, home care, nanny flats, residential care and other options. In this episode, John Saunders will talk about how to finance these different options. Here's John. Retirement villages, there's a contract, there's no asset and income testing per se about what you pay in a retirement village. And it's important to go through with a solicitor who's competent in this area, have a look at the contract and make sure you understand what you get when you leave and other issues, how capital gains in the property might be attributed to the provider and to yourself. So from that point of view, retirement villages are not complicated. It's about making that judgment of how much the lifestyle is worth to you compared to other ways of other forms of accommodation. Home care is also <clears throat> quite easy because you don't have an asset test, you just have an income test. Income test and there's a form provided that you fill out when you start a home care package which is used to assess income. And sometimes there are things there that we can employ to reduce the assessment of income, but generally the income fees are a lot lower and then say means tested care fees. And there's fairly generous income levels there. So retirement villages is straightforward because there's no government involvement. Home care is still relatively straightforward because it's only an income test and that income test is quite generous. Where it gets really complicated is the aged care facilities. Yes, that's correct. With aged care, we're looking at a heavily subsidised situation where the Commonwealth Government wants to make sure everyone's looked after. If you have no assets, you're looked after, you don't have as much choice. As you have progressively more assets, you contribute more to your care. It's this fairness, if you like, the asset and income testing that adds complications with aged care, you also commonly have to decide what assets you're going to use to fund, if it's a refundable accommodation deposit, and generate the cash flows for care. Generally, that's not as hard as we might think, but there may be estate implications on which assets you sell and what the will says and what impact that might have. If there's dual families involved, that adds another complication. Also, we typically we have to decide what happens if we keep the home and rent it um, for up to two years, we can look at the cash flows that might be associated with that. After two years, we know from a Centrelink point of view that'll affect the pension. So we need to look at that as a funding option and whether the rent will compensate us for the loss of, often the loss of the pension. Then often families want to know, well, what happens if we sell the home? And we'll have additional capital there. If they haven't paid the refundable accommodation deposit, they can pay the refundable accommodation deposit. Remember, if they're paying a daily accommodation contribution, a DAC, they can go that to a lump sum payment, a RAC, a refundable accommodation contribution. Money put into the RAD and the DAC 
disappear from the asset test for age pension purposes, so that can often be a benefit in terms of age pension. So often navigating those options is quite uh, tricky and an area where you might ask the advice of a specialist aged care person. And it's important, I think, that the aged care financial advisor also works with the accountant to make sure we're getting, and often the um, solicitor too, make sure we get the best outcome for the person in aged care and possibly for the person outside aged care, the partner outside aged care, but also long-term for the estate, managing issues like capital gains tax, over time, all these become important. It's often it's a big shock to the family to find that we have to pay 550000 or 450000 as a lump sum payment to the facility. And I'll just reiterate that lump sum payment is called a refundable accommodation deposit. Used to be called an accommodation bond pre-July 2014 when the uh, regime changed. Now it's called a refundable accommodation deposit and the facility will talk about RADs and DAPs. So the RAD, the refundable accommodation deposit, is payable when the person becomes permanent in care and if the lump sum isn't paid or only part paid, then interest is payable to the facility at the rate of 5.96%. That interest payment is set by the government and it's called the maximum permissible interest rate. I haven't heard of any facility charging less, so generally you're paying the 5.96%. Now that's the lump sum payment or the interest payment called the DAP. The other payments are daily payments. The first one is the basic daily care fee. This is indexed to the maximum single basic rate of age pension, that is the uh, maximum single rate without uh, subsidies on it, and currently that's $50.66 a day, that's about $18,500 a year, and the maximum age pension is about $23,800 a year. For someone who hasn't got a lot of assets and just receiving the maximum age pension, they'll have about $100 a week left over from their pension to spend on chocolates, podiatry, health fund, pharmaceuticals. And remember, there's also the pharmaceutical net. And do you always pay the basic daily care rate or do you only pay when you're in respite care? No, it's payable whether you're in respite or permanent care. So that's a, a fixed. It's indexed twice a year in March, 20th of March and 20th September when the pension is indexed. So that keeps the relativity between the max, someone who's on the maximum rate of age pension and is only paying the basic daily care fee. Now, the other fees that potentially one could pay is the means-tested care fee, and there's a, a large form, about 150-odd um, questions, regarding the person's entering aged care, their assets and income. So there's an asset test and an income test, very similar to the age pension, but I'll come back. With the age pension, whichever test limits the age pension most is a test applied. In this case, the asset result and the income result is added together to determine the means test of care fee. So that form to calculate the means test of care fee also does one other thing. 
It determines whether the person entering residential aged care has greater than $160,000 worth of assets or their share of the assets if they're a couple. And if you're a homeowner and there's no protected person like a spouse living in the home, then the home is capped at $167,000. So people with assets above that have to pay the negotiated RAD. People with assets less than that and without large incomes, greater than about $26,000 a year, they are termed low means residents and they don't have to pay the RAD. They pay a contribution towards their accommodation called a DAC, a daily accommodation contribution. So if your income is below a certain threshold, you don't have to pay the and rent. And your assets are below that $167,000. Then you don't have to pay the refundable accommodation yeah, the, deposit. That's right. The Commonwealth Government subsidises your accommodation as well as your care. So that's the first thing that's established. And I'll come back because that's an important thing, especially for couples, in that while if the main asset is only the home, the first person entering care would often enter as a low means resident. In, they're also called supported and concessional residents under the old regime. Now, I've jumped around a bit, so we talked about the, if you didn't pay the RAD, you'd be paying the interest, the daily accommodation payment, that's calculated daily. The basic daily care fee, everyone pays that, $50.66 a day. That form would calculate whether you're paying a means-tested care fee and how much that would be, and I'll go through the assessment process later. It has a maximum, and I'm rounding these figures, of an annual cap of $27,000. This is only for the income tester fee, not the basic daily care fee or any other fee. But you might pay a maximum of $27,000 in a year or $64,000 over a lifetime. These are both index figures, so they move around it. And we'll put a, a link to the web page where you can access those exact thresholds. And then, as I said previously, some facilities, not all, extra service facilities or charge an additional service fee. So often an extra service facility is related to having a higher standard of fixtures and fittings. It might provide newspapers or flowers or, and this, is, this forms part of the agreement. The facilities that were extra service prior to 2014 remain that status and in the agreement they'll list what services they provide for that. However, the bulk of facilities are not extra service and just charge those government um, assessed fees. That's why initially I said for the most part facilities only have control over the RAD within some limits. We talked about low means residents not having to pay a RAD and also there being an aged care pricing authority if you want to charge, a facility wants to charge a rat over 550000 So still fairly well controlled and protective of the resident. So I'll just summarise that again. The rat or the DAP for a rat paying resident. The basic daily care fee. The means tested care fee. And the extra service fee or additional service fee that the facility has 
and those uh, the extra service fee and the additional service fee, I think we'll see them popping up a bit more commonly now because most facilities are complaining about um, the level of Commonwealth Government subsidy that flows through. And that might be a good time to talk about the Commonwealth Government subsidy. So remember we had to have an ACAT assessment to see whether you were eligible to enter under respite or permanent care because the Commonwealth Government subsidises the facility. And this subsidy you never see as a resident or the, it's, it doesn't appear on the billing. When a resident enters permanent care, the facility assess their care needs under a model called the ACFI model. And this is a bit like an individual assessing their own tax liability. The facility assesses the client's care needs and the Commonwealth Government subsidy, and they're audited. And then, of course, the care needs are very high. Well, there is, I wouldn't say that, but uh, there is a game played there. So, just to give you an idea of what sort of assessment happens, the assessment is under three different domains. The first one is a bit like the insurance definition of activities of daily care. How much help do you need? Dressing, toileting, eating, showering all these basic activities. It might be nil, low, medium or high. Complex health issues. Has the resident got multiple health issues or issues that require a lot more time? Nil, low, medium or high. And behavioural issues. Does the resident become violent or wander? It's not about loud parties. Nil, low, medium or high. And in that matrix, in each of those boxes, there's a dollar amount of subsidy. And this is a very simplified version of how it's done. And you add up the boxes. It might be high, medium, high or whatever. The maximum subsidy could be around $245 a day. So that's about 90 grand a year. Now, the means-tested care fee is designed to calculate what the contribution of the resident will be based on their means to offset that Commonwealth Government subsidy. Have I lost everyone yet? If, for instance, a resident's care needs, let's say $150 a day, and that would be probably more common, or higher than that, then if your means test assessment came out at $50 a day, then you pay $50 a day as a means test of care fee and the facility's uh, subsidy is reduced from $150 to $100 a day. If your means test of care fee is $75 a day and the subsidy is $150, well, you, you're going to pay $75 a day for 12 months and you'll reach your $27,000 a year annual cap. Now, if your means-tested care fee was $150 a day, well, you're going to reach that cap in six months and then you'd stop paying and then you commence paying again at the second anniversary of your permanent entry into care. You pay for six months and reach $27,000 and then you stop. And remember for that uh, rest of the period, the government's paying the subsidy the full subsidy, and in the third year, well, we've got to, in round terms, you know, $54,000, and if the lifetime cap, which is indexed, is around $64,000, will you pay another 10000 over a few months, and then you never pay it again for your lifetime. And counted in those caps is 
the lifetime cap is any income attested fee you've paid in home care, so that also contributes. That's overly complex, but the idea is that that means tested care fee is the resident's contribution based on their means to their care. It's um, got very generous caps on it when you consider the total cost the government could be paying. And it's um, a fair test in many ways because it's based on both income and assets. Previously, the test was only based on income and that was uh, very easy to get around for residents. And it also favoured people with assets rather than large Commonwealth or you know, state superannuation pensions where you know, that was assessed as income. Basically, a homeowner, talking about the asset and income test now, the homeowner, if there's no protected person, a spouse in the home, then, or a carer, I'm sorry, just a spouse in this situation. Dependent child doesn't count. Dependent child does count, I beg your pardon. The child has to be financially dependent. dependent yes, so it could or be a child up to 25 years who's doing university study. In that case, the home isn't assessed as an asset. So if there are, and this is why I raise the issue, if there's no other assets, then, or very few, the resident shares less than $167,000, then... They are low-means residents. They're low-means residents. Now, given if they're on, only on the pension and their assets lie between $49,000 and $167,000, then they pay a contribution to their accommodation. And the concept here is that they have some assets, they should contribute something to offset the Commonwealth Government subsidy for the accommodation, which we'll talk about a bit later. So this contribution is called a Daily Accommodation Contribution, or DAC. As you, you know, we've got RADs and DAPs. Now we're going to talk about DACs and racks. So that daily accommodation contribution sometimes suits the family to convert it to a lump sum, like the RAD, but it's called a refundable accommodation contribution. The conversion between the two is that maximum permissible interest rate, 5.96%. So sometimes paying it as a lump sum may increase age pension eligibility, for instance, or just reduce those cash flows. So we've got RADs and DAPs, refundable accommodation deposits, and daily accommodation payments for a low-means resident. We could have a, RAC, uh, a DAC, daily accommodation contribution, and a RAC, which is the equivalent lump sum, at 5.96%. Now, if the assets are less than 49,000 and they're just on a pension, and have very little other deemed income or income from other sources. And the threshold there is around about $27,000. So that includes the age, pension and deemed income. If it's less than that, then the, uh, and the assets are less than $49,000, then the resident doesn't pay a DAC or a RAC. Do you know how discretionary trusts are treated or family trusts are treated if the um, or if the parent hasn't received any contributions from the discretionary trust of a certain time, is the discretionary trust then disregarded? It's hard to give a hard and fast answer here. Centrelink look at 
where did the money come from, who has control over it in determining whether they assess the asset or the income to the person in care or who's receiving a pension. So there was a strategy that um, some people might remember in the pre-July 2014 fee regime where an insurance bond was put in a special purpose trust to avoid the income tested fee. Now there's very little application for that now in aged care. Because, now, because that would now count as an asset and hence um, it would go into no, the asset. Yeah, it would be counted as an asset, even though it doesn't produce income, the asset's still counted. Couples entering residential aged care because they pose a significant issue. And as you can see, the spouse, quite often the wife, is in the home. The cost of maintaining the home and her lifestyle is, hasn't changed because her husband's moved into residential aged care appreciably. So that often presents a major challenge. What um, we can look at here is if the couple have very few assets outside the family home, already talked about the opportunity for the first person going into care being assessed as a low means resident, and even uh, and not having to pay the rat and the dap, and just on that, extra service facilities wouldn't accept a um, low means resident unless they've got general beds that aren't extra service. It does restrict somewhat the uh, facilities that you can go into, but there are a lot of facilities. A standard facility often has a threshold of about 20% that they're expected to keep of low means residents, it varies between different areas. If the facility has over 40% low means residents, or concessional is the other word you'll hear, or supported, then they get additional funding, a higher rate of funding for their accommodation. But now but, the um, wife comes But now the in. wife is at home and... Um, and now the house gets sold and now suddenly she no longer is, she is not a low-means resident and her husband probably now is no longer a low-means resident either. Now that can happen, but typically the spouse doesn't want to leave the home. One of the small benefits is that they're both assessed against the single rate of pension instead of the lower couple rate of pension. The person in care, they can survive on their own pension. Remember I said it's about uh, 23000 $800 and the, they'd be just paying the basic daily care fee of $50.66 a day, thank you very much, and they may have a small DAC, a daily accommodation contribution. So often their needs are pretty well met and that's probably how the system's being designed for low means residents to maintain a lifestyle of the spouse and we need to do that in the short term anyway because there's enough change happening without being turfed out of your home. So the spouse might have to draw more heavily if they've got on their superannuation contributions or draw down in cash, keeping in mind that often a person entering care may not have a long life expectancy. That can be an issue. And knowing that the spouse may sell down the house later on, they may move in, downsize the home, and we've all heard about the downsizer contributions, which we'll talk about in detail later on. But what would happen then, the spouse in care remains a low-means resident. So once 
become permanent and you're a low means resident, you can win the lotto the next day, you still remain a low means okay. resident. But what can happen is that daily accommodation contribution and the means test of care fee, they're dynamic as you know the assessment of the pension is. So when your situation changes, you let Centrelink, and when I say Centrelink, DVA too, let them know your new circumstances, you're supposed to do that within 14 days. Pensions reassessed, the DAC's reassessed, and the means test of care fee. So someone who went in and may not have been paying a DAC will now pay a DAC. The maximum DAC in round terms is $56 a day. However, not every facility receives an accommodation supplement of $56 a day. So uh, for a facility that's been recently renovated or built and who has 40% uh, low means residents, they would get an accommodation supplement for a low means resident of $56 a day. The DAC that the resident is calculated to pay offsets that $56 a day that the government pays. Now, it could be a figure closer to $36 a day for a, an older facility who may have 40% residents. There's about four different accommodation supplements that facilities might receive. So it's important to ask the facility what their accommodation supplement is for a low means resident to know what the maximum the resident could be paying. So in this case, let's say the uh, partner has moved into a facility that um, has been recently renovated has a high proportion of uh, low means residents, he may pay up to $56 a day in DAC, and he may also pay a means-tested care fee based on new financial circumstances. There are things we can do to minimise those fees sometimes. What Current, can you do? From the asset point of view, we can look at gifts, which we've talked about within the limits, Gifting limits ten thousand in a financial year, thirty thousand over five years. Five years, thank you. And uh, a funeral, a prepaid funeral, a funeral bond up to the value of thirteen thousand dollars doesn't have to be all spent. But remember, for a pensioner who is asset tested, when you gift money, not that a financial advisor would advise you to gift money or you purchase a funeral bond, where you, or you do renovations to the house where it's sensible, you actually get a 7.8% benefit back from the age pension because you're getting additional pension, which sounds a bit bizarre, but that's how it works. That also flows through to the means test of care fee and um, the DAC. But keep in mind with the means test of care fee, and the other common thing, of course, is... Um, a care annuity and uh, I'll just, it looks like a lifetime, lifetime term deposit, it isn't a term deposit, it's annuity, but it's structured such that you get 100% of the capital back and the reason why we might do that is because the assessment of the asset for age pension and age care fees, the capital is reduced by you know somewhere between 12 and 15%. So, you know, if you're asset tested, that gives you another return. But also, typically, half the income that you receive is not assessed. In this environment, annuities are earning about 3% care annuities, so you're getting a monthly payment, so it's better than a term deposit, if that was the alternative. So there are some things that work around the margin, 
But keep in mind the means tested care fee, if you're paying a high means tested care fee, reducing it a little bit may not have much impact in the long term because you've got an annual cap and you've got a lifetime cap. So they're all things to keep in mind. And from a financial planning point of view, actually taking action for an aged person in care is uh, somewhat delicate because you want to know that whatever benefit you provide in terms of reduced means tested care fees or DACs and increasing pension, that they get the cost of that advice back quickly because not everyone dies within 18 months, but um, there is a reduced life expectancy and um, generally not in a position to predict how long someone survives in care. What's very confusing, the forms that are required when you enter residential aged care. There's a large form, SA457, and you'll see the number in the bottom left-hand corner, and then it goes dot .1711, which is the version of the form, because they do change. So just keep an eye on that, that it's a current form. It goes through the residence assets and income, and generally it's as at the time of them becoming permanent, but it can be filled out beforehand and it can be filled out up to 28 days afterwards. It's current for at least three months, so sometimes you might want to hang on to the form before you lodge it. And it can be as long, take as long as six weeks to have it assessed. And uh, when it's assessed, you receive a letter and the facility receives a letter if they're already in care. And do most people fill out this form themselves or do most people engage a specialist like yourself to Often help them with this form? Often people do that because like all government forms, they're designed to try and capture every permutation and combination of a person's potential circumstances. So it makes it confusing and often it, it's important to know what they're trying to get at when you answer questions. There might be a trap. Oh, there's no traps, but... Um, as you but you might, you might misunderstand, somebody yes, might, might misunderstand the question all. and then answer it incorrectly and hence lose an entitlement. That's correct. You know, things like they ask for the value of the contents and generally for Centrelink purposes, that's a maximum of $10,000, you know, for the uh, contents of the home. The, often the value is a lot less, especially for an elderly person. It's the, if you emptied the house out onto the footpath and tried to sell it on a Saturday morning. That's the sort of value you put there. That's a common thing that people misunderstand. At about question 12, very early on in the form, it gives you the option and asks you whether you wish to provide financial information to, uh, for the assessment. And you can opt to answer that no. And then what would happen is the resident would pay whatever the Commonwealth Government subsidy would be to the facility. And they still benefit from the annual caps and the lifetime caps. So someone who might have a very well in excess of a million dollars, they might have trusts, private companies, things like that, where you know that they're going to be paying the caps, the maximum amounts, then you might elect to say no there. And But it's important you go to the back of the form where you nominate, where the resident nominates, and often it's the family, a person to be the nominee for that particular form under the Aged Care Act. And therein lies one of the confusions. You're not just dealing 
with one organisation, even though it's under the umbrella of the Department of Human Services, if you're receiving an age pension, you're under the Social Security Act, so there's a special form for providing information about who's to be the nominee for Centrelink purposes and similarly for the DVA. Now, you think that's enough, you've provided the nominee for two different organisations, but what's not stated and not apparent is Centrelink is in the business of doing asset and income information. They hand that on to the Department of Health who set the means test to care fee. But the organisation under the Department of Human Services that transfers the subsidies and the information around the system is Medicare. Now, you never see Medicare named anywhere, but there's another form called the Aged Care Payments Nominee, and it goes to a Medicare address. And that's where, if you wish to receive the ongoing paperwork for your parent and have it delivered to your home and not get lost at the facility, then you also need to fill out that nominee form. So unfortunately, that's not very well explained in the system. So you might only find that letters are being delivered to the facility. Sometimes you get them, sometimes they get lost. You find them somewhere in the bottom of a drawer. Yes, that's right. So it's when someone goes into care, it's the time to gather in the reins of all their financial circumstances. And that means having an enduring power of attorney active and that allows you to look after the financial circumstances. An enduring guardian in New South Wales allows you to um, provide help to the resident for their living circumstances. So when you get an enduring power of attorney, if you're dealing with a financial organisation like a bank or a fund manager, make sure that the power of attorney is certified on every business page of the document. There's information pages there or else they won't be accepted. If they're receiving foreign pensions, a UK pension, it's time to, even though a New South Wales power of attorney is only active in New South Wales, overseas organisations will generally accept that and you can change the address of services of notices and with your power of attorney then you can provide information to the pension provider, the financial fund manager, the financial advisor, etc. Even though Centrelink keep the same information for age pension and for age care fees on the same database, the assessment is somewhat different. And for an age pensioner, the home is exempt for up to two years from the asset assessment. But for means-tested care fee, the value of the home is capped at 167000 unless there's um, a spouse still living in the home. The difference between the age pension assessment and the age care assessment is the age pension assesses income and assets and whichever test, the income test or the asset test, reduces the pension most, that's the age pension you receive. And broadly speaking, the income test, if there's no superannuation pensions and things like this, the income test cuts in at about $150,000 worth of financial assets. That cuts in first and then later on the asset test becomes a more powerful test. So people with a lot of assets, it's the asset test that's um, important. With age care fees, there's a, an asset assessment and that 
goes someone like between $49,000 and $167,000, and I'm rounding these figures, you pay 17.5% contributes to the asset assessment. From about 167,000 to 400,000, it's 1% of the assets, and over about 400,000, 402,000, it is 2% of the assets contribute to the means tested care fee. So in this way, for aged care purposes, it captures both people with large incomes and large assets. For the income test, it's the income, including age pension, above about $26,000, 50 cents in the dollar contributes towards the means tested care fee. And what you don't see is when that assessment is done for aged care fees, if the combination of asset and income assessment reduced to a daily figure is greater than $56 a day, the maximum accommodation supplement, then the person has to pay the lumps or the negotiated RAD. If a person's means-tested amount, it's called, is less than $56 a day, then they might pay a DAC or no DAC. The amount above that threshold of $56 a day then becomes a means-tested care fee. So it's not a straightforward process and there are some other differences in the assessment of assets and income. So it's not quite straightforward there. another fee that we haven't covered yet? No, I think there's enough fees there and I'll just summarise them. The RAD or the DAP for a, a person who needs to pay the negotiated RAD. We've got a means test care fee, we've got the basic data care fee and some facilities charge an extra service or additional service fee. I, I just wanted to add something more to the assessment of couples. Often, tragically, you have the situation typically the husband enters care and has early onset dementia or may have had a serious medical condition which requires them to go into care and typically the spouse is still working and earning an income and trying to accumulate some assets for retirement. The Aged Care Act really and the assessment of fees really didn't um, look at this as a typical situation, which it isn't. And we talked about a couple going into care or where one partner's going into care or both. They're treated as what's called illness separated, where they're both assessed against the single rate of age pension, but all assets and income are treated as joint, no matter whose name they're in. Now I wish to talk about a status at Centrelink, which isn't commonly known or understood, even by people working at Centrelink, it's called living separately and apart. It doesn't mean you're divorced or separated just due to illness, because that's illness separated. What we're talking about here is a situation where there's no longer a marriage-like relationship, where there's not the physical or emotional support. And often this is a situation where there may be you know, severe dementia, where the spouse may not even be recognised by the um, partner in care. They may have become abusive or violent. All these situations would 
support a status of living separately and apart. And why we look at this is because in this situation, the partner in care, they are assessed not as a couple, but their own assets are attributed to themselves and they're assessed as a single person with their assets only that are in their name. This can often lead to a much better financial outcome for the younger person or the spouse left in the home where they still have the same expenses, they might be a lot younger, they may be um, trying, you know, getting back into the workforce after having left early to look after a spouse. This is a very specialist area and I emphasise that we're not just talking about illness separated and uh, for some couples they're better off to be assessed as a couple because it spreads assets and income between them and that can produce a better outcome. For some couples, especially where it's a second marriage or those situations where they keep their assets separately, possibly the spouse left in the home might have the majority of the assets and income. And in this case, the person entering care would have much lower fees under the status living separately and apart. What about joint assets? Joint assets would still be treated as joint, 50-50. does lead to some other complications later on, you know, if the home sold, etc. That needs to be carefully evaluated and often we would look at um, various outcomes, say, well, if they entered care as illness separated, as a couple, joint, everything joint, then what outcome would that um, have in relation to paying RADs and means-tested care fees and DACs, etc.? If they were had the status living separately and apart, what would happen if they entered under that status and only the person entering care, their assets were assessed and income? The other thing often we look at, and sometimes it's timely to do that, is if the one spouse entered as a low means resident, what would happen in the future if the spouse left in the home sells the home and wants to downsize? There are a lot of considerations here and it's worth looking at those or modelling those circumstances in detail. I'd like to go on and talk a little bit about the interaction between aged care and pension. And when I mention age pensions, I'm also talking about asset and income tested DVA pensions. One of the trickiest things for most people to get their heads around is what happens to the home? How's the home assessed? Under age care, if there's not a protected person in the home, the home's value is... Um, Included in the asset test. Yeah, but it's capped at a value of $167,000, an index figure. And for as long as they hold the home, the home is assessed at that value. Now, these are the very current rules. There are some older rules, but I won't... Um, for pe grandfathered rules for people who entered um, before 2014, before the 1st of January 2015 and the 1st of January 2016, there have been rule changes. So from means-tested care fee, DAX, the house is assessed as at a value of $167,000 for as long as it's held. If you're renting the home, the net rent is assessed as income and contributes to the income side of the test. 
from a pension point of view, the home, if there's not a protected person in it, is only exempt for up to two years. Then after two years, the home is now assessed as an asset. And for most people living in Sydney and Melbourne, that will blow them out of the water in terms of the asset test. So often at that stage, there's to be decisions made about whether we continue to keep the home and whether the RAD has already been paid, there have been other assets to pay the RAD. If not, we want the rent to also be able to fund the DAP and the pension that's been lost. So that is a time of major reassessment. The rules around DAP and RAD and DAC are quite forgiving when it comes to the family home, even if the person is no longer living in the family home yes. because it's kept at 167,000. Right. But the age pension is not forgiving on the family home if the person no longer lives there, there because right. then they include the full value of the family yes. home in the asset test. Yes, that's right. So that's a, you know an important time you know to keep track of that two years and make sure you have a plan when that happens. And for many people, selling the home and, you know, especially Sydney siders, very reluctant to sell a home because uh, property prices have gone up consistently for a long time and just now starting to falter. But the other consideration is if there's more than one beneficiary in the estate, that home's going to have to be sold to distribute to the estate unless one person can buy it, the others. So often, especially in this environment, deciding on what you do with the home, selling you could rent it out, you might have to do it up again before you sell it again and who knows how long the parenting care is going to live. So often selling the home is not such a bad outcome. It does increase the means test of care fee and can reduce the pension. There are costs in holding the property and preparing it for sale later on anyway. So there are a lot of things to think about and a lot of advice people need in this area. Welcome back. Red and dab and rack and dag. <laughs> it sounds like a rap, doesn't it? But understanding all these different fee components is quite overwhelming at first. In the next episode, episode 104, Ron Lash of BGL will talk about the accountant's exemption. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <laughs>